G'day. It's Osha here. Uh, thanks heaps for listening. Lance Kalish is on the show today. Serial entrepreneur, all-around good bloke, extraordinary visionary businessman. He's got a lot of interesting things to talk about. I can't wait for you to hear it. Before we get to that chat, this is a podcast that... I guess values, production values. So I have to pay people to help me make this show, including Andy Ma, my audio producer, and Rachel Barrett, my show producer, who helps me organize things. Um, to do that, I need to play ads. So depending on where you're listening to this and the luck of the draw, you're either about to hear an ad and then Lance and then a theme song, or you're just going to hear Lance and then the theme song. Let's roll the dice. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I have my three Ps yeah. on every single business. Perseverance. There's no business that you will be involved in that's not going to have massive, massive troughs. And if you can't work through those, you know, red flag. The second one is partnership. The ability to be able to build businesses with people who have complementary skills to you, who can divide and conquer. The third one for me is passion. I absolutely love what I do. And when you're passionate about business and when you can see that passion in people, it's just a different level of enthusiasm and drive and motivation that they have to make something work. And kind of those three things I've, I find work all together. So I look for those three whenever I'm investing or when I'm looking at an opportunity and I say, can I find these three elements in the business that I'm next getting into? Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so grateful you're here. This podcast is simply a conversation, hopefully designed to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. Something that you hear today will make you go, oh, you know what, I might work that into the routine. And um, today ends up being a little bit better than yesterday was. That's all we're here to do. If you don't know me, my name's Osher Ginsberg. I'm a TV 
guy, book writing guy, family guy, podcasting guy from Sydney, Australia. I'm, I'm sitting on my in front of my house at the moment. Um, no blokes with wheelie bins today. On Friday there was a wheelie bin bandit running around putting his overflow into everyone else's bins, which uh, I was most impressed with because it was in broad daylight. I, I wait till after dark to do that. Yeah, sitting in the sun, looking at the wind in the trees. It's lovely. And yeah, that's, that's, that's what I do. Massive thank you to everyone that came along to the Sydney Symphony Orchestra gigs across the weekend over Valentine's Day. It was just extraordinary fun. Vanessa Scammell, the conductor, was super, super good. And Gemma Ricks, my goodness, one of the greatest voices in Australia. Gemma Ricks on stage was just electrifying. And um, at the very, very end of the show, we did an encore. And um, we did Endless Love, which made... Vanessa the Diana Ross part and they ask I did the Lionel Richie part and I hope certainly if you went along I hope that what I lacked in pitch I made up for in enthusiasm so apologies if I was flat and horrible but thank you so much for coming it was heaps of fun it was uh, great to meet people who uh, who were there and came up and said g'day that was really really good um, though uh, you don't have to come to a gig you can always just email me if you like send off your email at gmail.com thanks heaps for brad who sent a great picture of what he's looking at i do love to see what you're looking at when you're listening to the show brad um enjoying listening to the podcast loving the podcast started at your first and enjoying my way through it and this is the stop for this one and he's looks like he might be on a bike he's at the top of a big hill looking down over a verdant green valley it looks gorgeous starting at the start wow a long time ago, that's when the, we had the big metal theme song, Brad, back in 2013. If you do start at the start, I was telling someone who came to those SSO gigs, around 22, 23 is where I start to get really sick. And you can kind of hear it in my voice. And for about the next 100 episodes, 120 episodes, things are a bit tough. Uh, and yeah, you hear the whole thing. You hear me meet Audrey, you hear, you hear all of it. It's all in there. But thanks heaps. This one came in from Jack. I'm sure you get this a lot. I'm not sure you'll even see this. My girlfriend, Christina, is a massive fan of yours and The Bachelor. It'd be really amazing and absolutely make her day if you could do a very short Valentine's video for her from me. Uh, sorry, Jack, this isn't a video, but it's me saying happy Valentine's Day, Christina, on the podcast. I hope that works. Christina, he did write this about a week ago, so he did think of you if he didn't get you a present. So there you go, Jack. And Thomas has written uh, a great picture of where he's listening. I love just I just love to see where you're listening because I know you, you listen to podcasts when you're out and about. I do my gardening when I'm listening to them. Listening to your rep with Blind Boy whilst playing a round of golf in the lovely eastern suburbs of Sydney. Leisure mixed with exercise is a great stress, anxiety, babbler. Absolutely. Love the show. It's helped me a lot in relation to my mental health. Thomas, I certainly hope that you're able to clear your mind and do some good mindfulness, do some solid breathing and feel your feet in your socks, in your shoes right before you take that drive. It looks like you're about to set up. Geez, Sydney's got some glorious golf courses. Quite a preposterous game, golf, isn't it? Let's get the most beautiful parts of the city and then not allow anybody else on them. <sighs> so we can a small privileged few blokes can walk around and follow a white ball around. Though I have enjoyed the few games of golf that I've played in my life. Um, let's check in with you today. The the blowback from my appearance on QA, it it continues, which is kind of interesting. Uh, if in case you're just catching up, there's a show in our country in Australia called QA. It's like, I don't know, like a, it's not exactly a debate show, but it's a political discussion show. And I was asked to come on on an episode about climate solutions. Now let's bear in mind, I'm nobody. I have a job on television, but 
I'm just a taxpayer like you and I feel strongly that science and reason should guide us when it comes to addressing the physical and economic challenges that our country faces, including that of climate change. That's it. I have as much of a right to talk about what I would like as anybody else. I pay taxes and I really like a strong economy. The two things I enjoy. I like paying taxes because I like the country I live in and I understand that it's built because of taxes, but because it's my money, I'd like to see that my tax money goes to use in alignment with my values. Um, we do a bit of that in this country, healthcare, housing and education. Those three things are very important to me. And without those three things, you start to get some pretty nasty knock-on effects within a community, within a society. So I, I really feel that healthcare, housing and education and access to that for all members of the community is very important. And uh, I like to see when I pay my tax bill, I see how much money goes to each of those things. And I go, good, that's good. Yeah, it's important to me. And like you, I, I like a strong economy. I do. I understand that a country needs to export things to make an economy work. And, you know, I think that's really important that we maintain a strong economy. But I can't say that I'm a fan of us putting all of our eggs in one basket when it comes to our economy, particularly like the coal basket, when the data clearly shows that coal isn't really going to be that popular in a couple of years from now. So when I went on national television, and when I do go on national television, I, I want to get my facts straight, okay? I'm very, very, very aware that I have disclosed quite publicly about not only having climate anxiety, but also having suffered paranoid delusions about climate in the past. And so I wanted to, when I went on q and I wanted to be very, very, very careful that I wouldn't come across as someone who was irrational, someone who was panicking, or someone who is otherwise delusional about what is happening and what needs to be done about this problem we all face. I wanted to be so careful of that because that would very quickly erode what I was trying to discuss. So in the days leading up to Q&A, as I've spoken about on this show, I spoke with some people, but I spoke with some heavy hitters. I spoke with professors of nuclear physics. I spoke to experts in economics. I spoke with professors in biology. I spoke with experts in nutrition and land use when it comes to agriculture. And, and not just people with a passing knowledge or I once read something on the Huffington Post. No, I spoke with people who've got degrees, letters after their last names, doctors, professors, people who work at the highest levels, not only in this country, but people overseas, people who advise governments on this stuff. All right. Unfortunately, not our government. They won't listen. But people who, you know, I spoke to people in other countries because they're like, I'm over here on a trip speaking to this particular government, in this particular country. I take my reputation very, very seriously. And I worked really hard to be sure that I was talking from a place of absolute fact. It was really important to me to do that. So, when particular conservative commentators, people without letters after their names, people who aren't professors, people who don't advise international governments, when these people go on television and write in the newspaper and then accuse me of being ignorant or being alarmist, I feel they're off the mark. I was talking with Audrey about this. I'm kind of wondering, why am I, why am I a target? No one votes for me. I'm not paid to make decisions about this stuff. Why on earth would these particular commentators take such umbrage at my stance? I count roses on a television show, for goodness sake. And Audrey and I talked about it. We kind of, kind of came up with a... What if 
what I said was dangerous? What if what I said in the way that I said it was a threat to the status quo? A threat to incumbent power structures uh, and that people in that position of that commentary position see that and jump on it immediately to try and discredit me. That'd be interesting. And the way they did it, it's all too pedestrian. The formula is so predictably the same. It's the, If you ever read a conservative commentary column, I don't recommend you do, but you can if you want, where you watch any of these people on their cable shows, it's the same pattern. It really is. It's like... It's like a pop song from the 60s. It's verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, chorus, fade. Maybe chorus, key change, fade. That's it. It's the same thing every time. Starts with outrage. How dare this rose counter say these particular things? And then a bit of pot kettle black work, accusing me of being ignorant and then trotting out either debunked or cherry-picked data sets to support their position of why they feel that I was making something up. And then, you know, because their schoolyard level skill set, they kind of go to minimising who I am. So they would go, oh, back when it was Andrew G or whatever. And then the othering really kicks in. This is a big one that this sort of stuff loves to do. The othering, it's the, it's the there is no us without a them. So, and you can't have a them unless you have a really simple them to put everyone in. So these bloody vegans or these coal naysayers or whatever, like these lefties lumping me and my personal opinions and all the nuances and, you know, very intricate ways that I've come up to the point where I feel the way I feel and believe the way I believe uh, in with there's just millions of other people, millions of other people who might have said something similar once, but obviously we're all the same person. So what that person over there says, clearly I believe it's not the case, but it's easy. And, you know, in this case, it was the green left or whatever it is. But it's many times in the past. It's been Jews. It's been Muslims. It's been Rottweilers, whatever. It's all the same. One Rottweiler barked at me, so therefore all Rottweilers are dangerous. And then there's the whataboutism. What about, what about, what about? What about his dog? What about his dog? Aren't dogs really bad for the environment? What about how much he travels? I see him, you know, hand out roses in another country. What about all the carbon emissions from his travel? What about his, his house? Wasn't his house built with fossil fuels or whatever? You know, the whatabouts. The next move is the what next. And this is the one I like. Uh, I learned this about Dan Ehrlich. I'll play something in a second. I learned this from Dan Ehrlich. I'll play a little bit in a second. The what nexting is the part where they just kind of ramp it up. What next? He'll be going to Davos making calls for the country. What next? He'll be chair of the Climate Council. You know, they just kind of keep going. And there's also always usually a healthy dose of conspiracy. He's just been fed lies from the greenies and just repeating them as if they are gospel or fed lies from the left or fed lies from the solar lobby or his vet. Or oh, the other one I like is like he's clearly on the take from the Nuclear Council or he's a shill for vaccinations and a shill for Big Pharma. Like, I've got a mortgage. Like, if the nuclear lobby or the people at Big Pharma would like to pay me some money for talking about safety of nuclear power and how good vaccinations are, you know, probably I'd be interested. No, I wouldn't be, but it'd be interesting. But no, there's no money coming in from anyone. But that's the conspiracy, right? There's always a conspiracy, right? And it always ends up with a he should stick to. He should stick to this, that, and the other, which he doesn't do very well. Rose counting, taking masks off or whatever. It's the same thing every single time, whether it's 
you know, and it's all just to avoid actually considering another person's opinion. You know, rather than consider another person's opinion and then be open to maybe having your opinion changed or altered or, you know, just at least allowing another person to feel the way they feel. No, it has to be utterly discredited as much as possible using these particular tactics. And it's the same thing every time, whether it be from multiple sources on Twitter, it's just the same pattern. Or if it's a rant on a cable news channel from a talkback radio host, it's also got a TV gig and a newspaper column. It's so predictable. It's, it's funny. And it's funny because it, the way it happened, it really reminded me of Riot Act, which Dan Illick uh, was a part of, of creating that um, audible uh, radio play podcast. I don't know what you'd call it. And I talked to Dan about this and I said, would you mind if I played this little particular bit? He said, you said it's fine, I play it. So here's a little bit from uh, Riot Act, what episode? Episode three. Okay, so this is when basically it's set at a fictional talkback radio station and I won't spoil it, but for whatever reason, one of the hosts isn't hosting anymore and they decide to replace this man with a woman. And then she's there talking to this long-serving host who's not there anymore, talking to his tired and kind of jaded producer, going, well, you know, how do I do it? And the producer just basically explains, look, here's, just do this. Do this. this is the pattern. This is how he does it. And um, it's pretty interesting where she kind of talks her through the game plan of just how to make the calls come in and how to fire up the outrage. This is from Riot Act. Well, what made Janacek so good? Well, good isn't the right word. Mm, yeah, you're right. Um, I meant successful. You know... I've thought about it a lot over the years, and he went from nobody to somebody pretty quick as soon as he stopped caring about getting the story right. So you made things up? Well, not exactly. I mean, there's always some grain of truth in what he's talking about, but it's this sort of what-next principle, you know? So you start with something that's technically true, in a way, then you take that logic and you say, what next? So let's say a girl wears a burqa to school. So Dave would say, what next? Assassin Bide going to start selling burkas? Is my daughter going to be forced to wear a burkini to the swimming carnival? Yeah, yeah. Is Advance Australia Fair going to include the words Allah Akbar? We're taking your calls. Seriously, the board will light up. And then there's also this thing that I call the Cicero. The Cicero? Yeah, the Roman dude. He had this technique where he'd draw attention to something by claiming he wasn't drawing attention to it. Like, I'm not going to say a single word about Dave's tendency to shit with the door open. I'll leave that to a lesser person. So, see, my hands are clean after that sentence, but I've still told you about Dave's fucked toilet habits. Why would he do that? I don't know. Something about getting stuck in there once. He was paranoid. And Dave Janacek was still smart enough to know about Cicero? No, I was. He used to think the name was Syphilis. Now, there's something Dave knew a lot about. Too right. Oh, oh, that reminds me. I should shred those test results first. All right. So I developed this and it works and now it's yours. And the best bit about combining those techniques is you get to be more and more outraged by tiny things, okay? It's kind of like splitting the atom. On its own, the atom doesn't have much power, but split it and you've got a nuclear bomb with some big numbers that you know it's happy with. It's really just all about those numbers, isn't it? Oh, oh, oh. Also, always, always speak on behalf of Australia, no matter what the issue is. So, like, the mums and dads of Australia have had it up to here with the lack of parking at Rockpool. But... It's so dumb. Michelle, this is Australia. People are dumb. You've got to turn Campbell into a skywriter, and it doesn't even have to make sense. It just has to make people look up and say, oh, look at that shit. That's a very astute metaphor. Yeah, thanks. Maybe I'll write it down. So that's Riot Act. That's um, uh, Dan Ellick and Mark Humphrey's project. You can find it on Audible if you want to have a bit more of a listen. The whole series is, is fantastic because actually it skewers pretty much everyone, including the, what they call it, the... The social justice industrial complex. That's it. The social justice industrial complex, which is also extraordinarily funny. 
And speaking of conspiracy theories, because um, I do get accused of this a bit, I've been reading up a bit on conspiracy theories, and I'm fascinated at it because, you know, particularly around climate denialism and, and stuff like that, and I do get hit, hit with a lot of it. And, oh, man, the stuff on Twitter just kept going this week. But I was kind of like, why, why would people believe in this stuff? And the science shows it's rooted in narcissism. It's rooted in narcissism, this idea that the person who believes the conspiracy theory feels they know better than everybody else. So I don't care what any of those people over there, those professors or whatever, politicians or whoever, millions of people who vote in a particular way say, I know better. Even if that person may be a journalist and the facts they're disputing may have been repeatedly proven by the scientific method, the scientific method by its nature is something that is sceptical and finds theory to be true by asking other scientists who don't feel as true to replicate their process and try to find a different result. And when they don't, they go, this is, this is what we're working with at the moment. But I guess you've got to have an element of narcissism to be any kind of political commentator, no matter what side of the spectrum you sit on. That's kind of got to be there, but I don't know. I just thought as you go about your day and you, and you witness the critique of people who are quite calmly, probably, speaking out about extreme weather that has hit Australia in the last six months, extreme weather that's burned a lot of the country to the ground, extreme weather that's washed away massive parts of beachside suburbs of Sydney, people who are speaking out about this, people who are rational, people who uh, can see cause and effect, people who know that something needs to be done, watch, watch as they get criticised, watch as they get lumped into one giant big bucket just notice the pattern once you see it you can't unsee it i guess all i can do is stick to know what i know today and then keep asking people smarter than i am if what i know today is still what's happening and stay open to having my mind changed because that's ultimately what i want for others yeah geez that went long <laughs> we haven't even got to the interview yet Hang on a second. Just quickly, before we get to the interview, I did want to say thank you so much to everyone that did rate and review the show in iTunes. It does help enormously if you do that. And please, if you will be so kind as to recommend the podcast to someone else, that would be a, a massive help, a massive, massive help. So let me tell you about my guest. I'm so excited to have this guy on. Lance Kalish is an incredibly successful serial entrepreneur from Sydney, Australia. In 2006, along with former podcast guest Ido Leffler, Lance founded Yes2, which went on to be the second biggest natural beauty brand in the USA, which I believe like this year, it looks like it's going to generate like somewhere between 40 to $60 million in revenue. Like they built a proper stonking solid business. They really did. Since moving back to Sydney 10 years ago, Lance has been a part of starting multiple companies which give back as they make money. Uh, one is Yubi, the school supplies company that provides stationery for underprivileged kids. It's now, I think, over 1.5 million kids in the US and over 10,000 kids here in Australia have been helped by Yubi. Uh, he also started Cheeky Home, which is another one-for-one -one company aiming to end hunger in the US. They've provided over 6 million meals for people in need since they started. They're doing really, really well. And that's just two of the things that these guys do. Lance and Ido wrote a book about their adventures. It's called Get Big Fast and Do More Good. You can get that book wherever you get your books. This chat's from a little while back, for whatever reason I won't go into, but for various reasons I wasn't able to air it. 
at the time. And um, so it's it's a little while back now when and he and I talked uh, a lot about Wolfie and it was when Wolfie was a bit younger. Wolfie's six months old this week. But I left it in there because I thought it was cool, like a little time capsule. So enjoy this conversation with the extraordinary Lance Kalish. Dude, well done for the mask. Mate. And it could've it could it's one of those shows that just could go either way, eh? Yeah. It's luck. You know, I was saying to someone the other day, it's not like you work half as hard on the ones that do half as well. You work as fucking hard as you can on everything. Yeah. You know? But this one just happened to happen to work. And we're really lucky, man. Are you going to do another season? Or? Yeah, they've, they've already locked in for another season. So now you've got this and The Bachelor and yeah. Bachelorette. Mate, you're getting busy. Was, dude, I was unemployed before Bachelor showed up, you know. No, it was... What season is Bachelor in now? So we're rolling around to season eight. How many more can you do of these series? Can you pick up a couple of more? I reckon I'm at capacity. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I don't you can think... only like two at most. I'm already on, like last week, I was on four nights a week. Oh, really? Two different formats at 7.30 p.m. I just, I just can't believe it on, on prime time, yeah. you know, to go from what was happening in my life to this. And in the, the time I've known you. <laughs> and the baby. And the baby. And we bought a house. Did you buy one? We bought a house in oh, Bronte. Oh. Yeah. It's beautiful. But I was way too scared. When I saw the number, I was like, holy shit, I've got to make that much money for 30 years? Fucking hell. And I was just like, do it. This is where you should call me up. I'm good at this. I'm a finance guy. (laughs) (laughs) You always, if there's one thing you overspend and overpay and beg, borrow and steal, it's your house in Sydney, in the eastern suburbs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You cannot lose. And let that be your nest. Yeah. And everything, whatever you do, whatever extra money you make, just pay off the mortgage yeah. and put it in your offset and you can use it and yeah. invest out of there or do other stuff. But it doesn't matter. Remember, the value goes up. Yeah. It's not like you're going to be paying, yes, that mortgage every year, but you can refinance. You'll refinance every two years. Right. And now that you're making more money as well, it's like start, yeah. start speaking to advisors. Like do it, you've, you've got the best MBA ever. <laughs> you have money. And you, you did what we've all done when we first get money. Uh, yeah. You piss yeah. it up and then you make it, up, it again man. the second time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, without and a doubt. That's the best MBA you can get. Mate, I, I can't even begin. You know, I catch myself sometimes, and I'm sure you do the same thing. I catch myself sometimes thinking about the decisions I made when I was drinking and you know, the investments and the people that I believed who came in with their fancy slideshows. And back then it was, you know, hey, look at this. You know, prospectus, it's great. It's shiny paper. I was like, ooh, that looks exciting. I can own these things. Yeah. <laughs> and then we need this much money up front. Brilliant. It'll be 100% blah, 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 tax offset. They sort of spoke all the kind of junk gobbledygook. Brilliant. Take my money. <laughs> That's exactly what they yeah. fucking did. Yeah. Oh, I watch the social network. <laughs> Definitely going to be the next Eduardo Severin. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And catching myself when I feel resentful about it. There's no point to be resentful about it. Yeah. My father did it at, uh, I don't know if I told you about this, but my father's a surgeon. Are you happy to talk about this? Because I'm interested. In, uh. I wrote about it in the book. Yeah? Um, All right. If you yeah. wrote about it, let's talk about it. Because this is an interesting part of the origin story. It's an interesting part of, because you, you come from a family where it was all there, wasn't it? And yeah. then it was in a very big hurry, not there. It was completely gone. Yeah. So what do you want to talk about today? How do you oh, want to do Oh, exactly this? this stuff. 
you okay. Know, this just stuff and, and also the kind of businesses that you're building and yeah, have a conversation about, you know, to vibe people on, on starting some shit. Okay. What did I see the other day? Australia is, it freaked me out, Lance. Are we, are we on? Yeah, we've been on, we've been on oh, for a while. Cool. I'll, cut, I'll cut anything out. It's fine. <laughs> um, I, I love it. I love it. I, I really enjoy it. You know, cause I think often my favorite part of any podcast stuff is the stuff where people go, Oh, Oh, we're we rolling. It's like, yeah, cause then you get the kind of, you know, the real feeling that you're actually really there. And, you know, I, we haven't said anything that, you know, I haven't already talked about. <laughs> right, you, know? you shouldn't have even told me one. You should have said oh, just right. chat. <laughs> oh, what was I going to say? Never mind. Think about it. Yeah, never mind. You it's were called, asking me. It's called man flu fog. Yeah, totally, dude. But I can't say a thing because Audrey's up every 90 minutes through the night feeding Wolfgang. And yeah. I love um, that name, Wolfie. Yeah, he's good. Yeah, well, he's my, you know, he we, was the name we were, we were bouncing it around and it's like one of my favourite composers was Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. It's like, it was pretty good. Sure, he died in a pauper's grave, but, you know. But, <laughs> Mate, his legacy lives on forever. Yeah, our boy doesn't have to do that. You know, I, I'd really like to have that conversation with you and also, you know, kind of speak about the kind of businesses that you build and how businesses are going into the future and particularly wanted to talk to you about, you know, just vibing people on on starting stuff because what did I see the other day? And it was harrowing, Lance. Like the diversification of an economy is something that, you know, protects an economy against market forces beyond our control. You know, I don't know. Say if all of a sudden the whole world goes, we don't want to eat grain, Australia would be pretty fucked because we export so much of that stuff, right? When it comes to diversifications of economies on the some sort of Harvard something, something scale, I'm going to mess this up, but at number 90 was Senegal, at number 91 was Uganda, at number 92 was like Eritrea, number 93 is Australia, number 94 was like <laughs> like, like full on like just mega African mining nations, like that's it. Like, yeah. And that's where our economy is. And- you know, when I think about the future, Lance, and I think about when China and India just go, yeah, we don't want coal anymore. Thanks. We're out. W- what are we going to do? <laughs> and if we don't start getting ready now, if we don't start getting ready now, what kind of economy will our kids live in? And someone like you who, who mentors entrepreneurs and mentors startups is something really important to talk to, to get the idea in people's heads like, you know, we've got to start some shit. We've got to, we've got to find gaps. We've got to make stuff because pretty soon, and I was talking about it this morning with, uh, yesterday actually with someone who was at our house. I've spent a fair bit of time in Israel and, you know, the country is incredibly complex and there's an incredibly complex story about the country and whatever you, you think about the country, there's definitely a lot going on there. But you can't deny that this is a country with no natural resources, no oil, no gas, no gold, no nothing. The second highest number of companies listed on the New York Stock Exchange are Israeli companies behind American companies. That's correct. You know, this is a country that's gone, we got to make something because otherwise we've got nothing. And I'm sure they're not alone. You know, you look at somewhere like the Netherlands who are also incredibly innovative. Like, we could do that. It's not like we're dumb. Well, there's, a, there's an old Jewish joke. Yeah which is why did Moses walk around the desert for 40 years and lead us to the only place in the Middle East where there was no oil? <laughs> I've heard that one. <laughs> so all of a sudden they had to start using their brains yeah. and come up with something. But the Israel story is actually uh, it's a really cool story, which is why when I moved back from living in the U.S. where my business partner and I you know, started our, one of our 
first companies, I would say the one that really took off the most, which is yes to a natural skincare company. And I moved back in 2011. And I was here, I my, my kids were starting to go to school, we wanted to, you know, plant our roots here, make sure that everything we did going forward was here. We weren't going to live in America anymore. And that's when I decided, well, what am I going to do? Consumer products and brands and skincare, which I was in, in the US is just immense. It's huge. The opportunities were massive. It's kind of like, as you know, you kind of make it in Hollywood in in singing or acting. It's very difficult to come back to Australia and, and make this your market. And so I wanted to look at, well, Look at the opportunities. What are the new opportunities in Australia outside of consumer products? I'm not in agriculture. I'm not a financial property person. These are all the old stuff mm. of uh, propping up the Australian economy. What about startups? You know, if countries like Israel and the Scandinavian countries, mm. Estonia, you know, Estonia is one of the leading countries in startups today. There's crazy places. It's countries where they've said, well, what is our biggest comparative advantage? And they go, well, it's our intellect and our IQ. Mm -hmm. And the government gets behind it and they get started. And that's exactly what I felt at the time I wanted to get involved with and started getting involved uh, in the whole uh, startup environment, um, invested in a couple of things. This was 2011, 2012, but it was a real uphill battle. And I actually approached the Australia-Israel Chamber of Commerce and said to them, what if, if we put a group of Australian kind of leading um, entrepreneurs, guys in technology, more of the guys who've actually, against all odds, been able to achieve something in the last couple of decades, mm. bring them all together with some of the new guys. Let's take them all on a mission mm. to Israel just to learn and see how they did it. Mm. What, what would we get out of that? And we got a huge amount of interest. And in 2000, I think it was 2013, we went to Israel for two weeks, mm. basically just to explore and discover what Israel has done and why they call Israel the startup nation and learned an absolute fortune mm. and came back. And a lot of stuff has happened really slowly over time. But I would say if I went back seven years and I look forward to now, you know, people are, are quite upbeat on the whole on the whole startup industry in Australia on the tech side of things, um, and there's some really good companies that have come from nothing, like Canva, mm. um, and obviously Atlassian, but that was even before that. Um, there's a couple of you know they call them unicorns now that are or emerging, and things are much better. But I think it's still a lot slower than I would have expected. You know, thinking if I if I put my hat on and look back to, to 2013, and that's really been a response from the government's attitude, changing governments. They just haven't really been all there and gone all in. Whereas countries like Israel, they really had nothing else. They had no choice. Hmm. They said, this is our area we're going to invest um, and we're going to do it. Hmm. And a lot of that is saying there's a lot of variables. Like for instance, in Israel, they have massive, massive defense spending on obviously uh, cyber, digital, technological well, warfare. And that's the same reason why America um, has such a strong startup. When it comes from defense, defense spending is always the biggest expenditure in any first world country. And that generally then drives people, ideas and the technology into private commercialization. Mm. And that often spurs or well, helps advance uh, startups in the whole industry. Yeah. The, the second thing there as well is the, the attitude and the entrepreneurial nature of people. So typically in Israel, you get people who are really not only enthusiastic to start new businesses, but not afraid to fail. 
And that's the biggest thing. And when they do fail, they don't really care. They just move on to the next thing. And we talked about this a long time ago, if you remember, on a ski lift mm. in Squaw. <laughs> and you actually, I was telling you about tall puppy syndrome that yeah. I had learned as a South African when I came to Australia, what a tall puppy is. And you explained to me that that's actually from the Brits. Mm. And uh, I actually started thinking about, of course, that makes a lot of sense because British people also mm. tend to be a little bit like that. And that's something that you just don't have in places like Israel and around there. They don't mm. care if they fail. And when they do fail, they're happy to talk about it and they're happy to learn from it and then they're happy to start up again. Yeah. Whereas here, there's still, um, I mean, we still have the the old, if you um, uh, fold two companies, you could lose your right to be a director. Yeah. That's kind of crazy. Um, if you fail, it's not something you want to advertise to everybody. In America, it's also, it's like a badge of honor. Look, I failed. There's yeah. some VC guys who'll say, I won't back you unless you failed in a couple of companies. I've heard that. I've heard that people in pitch meetings won't, like sometimes, like back when I was, like it was right around the time that we first met, I was going up to Sand Hill Road and I was pitching and stuff like that. And there were definitely people who were like, look, have you launched something before? So I'm not like, unless you've done this before, launched, lost everyone else's money, if this is not your second time, I'm not interested. Because that exactly what we were talking about just before. It's like unless you know what it is to be skin knees on the ground weeping, you know, with the crushed dreams of an, you know, like an abort ping pong table that you had for the foyer and there's dreams of some sort of startup utopia, you know, and be able to say to someone, yeah, man, I totally fucked it up, then you don't have the care to take care of the money the next time around. And I totally get that. And I certainly noticed that when I got to America in 2005 when I first moved there. I would mumble into my hand. What do you do? I was Australian Idol. You what? So I was almost Australian. You you host Australian Idol? <laughs> I was so afraid to say it out loud. Yeah. But it was in this country. No, dare I never say that. But over there, I learned that success and not and just not only success, but the potential of success was currency, man. Yeah. It, everybody just wanted to. It was like investing. It was like I want to get behind this guy. Well, before anyone else gets on him, it becomes a pissing contest. And people just want to back early as early as they can. They want to back people. Whereas here, it's very much let's see what you can do. Exactly. This is, which is wild. But just t we touched very briefly on what gave you this drive. And I'm always interested in, or in a bit of an origin story. But you grew, up, you grew up in South Africa, grew up in Johannesburg. And I'll never forget. <laughs> I can't remember where we were. And I said, oh, man, be careful walking home. Fuck off, bro. I'm from Johannesburg. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like me. <laughs> I was like, no, you didn't even say that. I said, fuck off, man. I'm from Joburg. You shortened it. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. A real, a real Johannesburg, a real Joburger will never say Johannesburg. No, no, no. I'm from fucking Joe. Fuck off. Fucking walk home. <laughs> it was hilarious. But your dad had done quite well. And then before your eyes, everything kind of crumbled, didn't it? What happened? Yeah. Um, and this kind of goes back to the not having something or experiencing something in order to actually get the, the full diploma yeah nothing replaces experience and you can learn from every textbook that there is you can get any degree that you want nothing replaces experience i mean i was very fortunate we we had a very uh, affluent life my father was a surgeon and money came very easy to him as a surgeon because he just had to pitch up for work and fortunately had a, a fantastic practice as well so what kind of surgeon was he ear nose and throat surgeon oh yeah man People keep getting sick. Exactly. <laughs> it's a, people keep getting sick. They need they need grommets and yeah. uh, women need new noses. Especially so, man, in those Jesus. Days. <laughs> <laughs> so 
I think he was a very passionate doctor who found it very easy to make money. And so whenever he made it, he used to have at any one time a friend who would come up to him and say, I have a great business idea and uh, you should invest in this. And he would trust a lot of people because that's what doctors do. And we had a great life. And when we moved to Australia, thankfully, we came as a family. So it made uh, transition and immigration to Australia quite easy as well. And when I went through and met my business partner, Ido Leffler, and we started our very first business, we were about six months into the business. And I remember the attitude I had when I started the business. I left uh, working at Coopers. I was in corporate finance. I wanted to do this big entrepreneurial you know, move. It's quite high risk. But in the back of my mind, I knew that if it didn't work out, I would have a safety net. You know, mm. I could always say I just got married and I knew that if things were not so good, I could always go to my father and say, hey, dad, just help me out, bridge me for a little bit over here. And about six months into that, Fortunately, my father uh, got involved in an investment that at the end of the day through just, I would say, probably inexperience more than anything. Mm. That's the one thing. Doctors don't make the best businessmen in the world. And it ended, he ended up being the guarantor on a business that went into liquidation. Oh, far out. And so even though he wasn't even running the business, because he was a guarantor, they came after everything and uh, basically took everything, house and all and wow. everything. And so uh, kind of overnight, that safety net just completely disappeared. And I remember lying on, in my bed, kind of just staring up and I almost didn't want to tell my wife and thinking, oh my God, what am I, what am I going to do if this new business that I've started doesn't work? I've got nothing to fall back on. I'm going to have to work like this is the very last thing that I'm going to do. And that completely and utterly changed the way I approached work. I woke up the next day and I went with a completely different perception. And I think that drive gave me the motivation, but most importantly, the perseverance. Because when you get to those tough times and every single business has us ridiculously tough times where you're thinking, God, it's got to be so much easier just to work for somebody and, you know, get the paycheck in the post and... Uh, not have to worry about where the next check is coming from and how to pay the bills. And you won't push through that unless you know what it feels like to have absolutely nothing there. And so I'm proud of my father and he went back to working and so did my mother, which I'm actually so proud of my mother because how many you know stories do you hear of uh, marriages of 40 years being completely split because my mother always had the good life and she turned from a woman of leisure to a working mum. Wow. At the age of uh, 65 or something like wow. that. Wow. What work did she go and do? She did anything and everything. Wow. She um, invigilates at the schools. Um, she actually works for a um, event manager. So she does all labor because she was actually a teacher by trade, yeah. so, but she didn't requalify in Australia. Um, yeah. And she's unbelievable. She even makes uh, famous Jewish bulkers. Yeah. You know, which has got really cinnamon bun and she sells that to people and uh, she loves it. Yeah. She loves contributing and even though it's not a huge amount, she just loves the fact that she said, okay, she said to my father, you gave to me for the last 45 years and who knows why this happened, but I'm not just going to give up. I'm going to give whatever I can. So oh, amazing man, woman as well. so beautiful. That's so beautiful because the story is, is not usually that. The story is like, 
I'm off to go and chat with Bob from the golf club that has been over to our house many times and oops a daisy now I live with Bob. That's happened so, like that's the story. I keep on looking at, you know, some of the things unfortunately that happen to other people and that, that's what happens 95% of the time. Yeah. So my father as well, the way that he looks at the world, he keeps on saying to me, as long as I have my health and my family, I have my happiness. All the other stuff will come and go. And, um, you know, fortunately, my brother, who followed in his footsteps, and he became an ear, nose, and throat surgeon, and has got a fantastic practice here. And I'm okay now. So all of that type of stuff is wow. just so insignificant compared to the big stuff, like health and happiness and family and togetherness. It's extraordinary. Man, that's extraordinary. And you're, you're absolutely right. It's such a beautiful thing to hear you talk about your, your parents like that and that relationship. I can't imagine what that conversation would have been like. <laughs> hey, honey, remember that thing? <laughs> yeah. Man, that's a it, tough phone call. It's a very, very yeah. tough phone call. He, he's, yeah, my father's very nostalgic about all the toys. He, he still goes, if only I knew, if only I did oh. this, remember that. And he always says, just learn from me. Uh-huh. And one of the things my brother always states this all the time, he said, because I'm always big on you have to experience it to learn. He mm. said, yes, but you could also learn from the trauma of others and not repeat the same thing. This is true. So this is very true. That's why I've become huge on everything, listening to experience, yeah. to podcasts, to whatever, hearing your stories. You don't have to suffer and go through all of these things to be great and come out the end. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is absolutely true, and this is the, the extraordinary benefit we have now. There was a time where... You know, certainly when even when I was starting work, you know, it was like there was there was no books on radio, there was no books on TV broadcasting. Now I can listen to a, this many podcasts about the back end of it, and you know, learn so much about the industry that I otherwise never would have learned. But this is extraordinary, extraordinary time. That absolutely, and that, that reminds me because my father always said to me, his biggest regret, or it's not his biggest regret because he couldn't do anything about it, but he said when he had and was making a fortune of money in South Africa during the 70s and 80s. So there was no such thing as a wealth advisor. Mm. He actually had no idea what to do mm. with the money. And unfortunately, doctors in their crazy 15-year education, you know, when you specialize and become mm. a surgeon, they do absolutely zero business yeah. or financial you know, studies. And I, so they yeah. don't know anything. I saw both my parents do that. Exactly. And it, it, it sets them up terribly because they get paid so damn well that if they fuck up, they just, oh, it's fine. You know, I'll just invoice 
early or whatever, and then the next month's payments come in, they go, ah, 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 and they just write checks to fill the gaps. Oh, yeah. You know, I saw that that many times, you know, and then it, then when it all went ass up, then there's nothing there. Yeah. There's a whole golden uh, underwater city that is <laughs> funded by the losses of doctors <laughs> like my parents and your parents. <laughs> I'll bet, man. Oh, so lots of, lots of timeshares in <laughs> parts of the country that no one wants to go to. <laughs> um, uh, and a lot of rich people in Nigeria and places like that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, don't know, I think it's just more like crappy financial management. But, yeah, you're right. They're too busy. I don't think it's the mindset, you know. There's finance people go into finance and medical people go into medicine. The, the brains don't really work with numbers very well, I think. Well, I'll tell you one of the things that I came up with. My father, with this last business that took him out, when he realized how difficult it was getting and that the risk that was um, he, he was exposing himself to, he actually inserted himself in the business, got very involved in the business. And it was a retail electronic business, so he knew nothing about it. But he felt that if he worked in it and he got to understand it and the harder he worked, he would be able to fix the problem. Now, mm -hmm. What does that sound like for a surgeon? Surgeons never give up. You don't, no. oh, I think this guy's going to die on the table. <laughs> you know what, uh, 7.30 and Osher's on The Bachelor. Gotta I better get yeah. home. Yeah. You know, they will fight and fight and fight and fight and fight okay. until that person flatlines and then they'll probably still try. Mm. And that's very good yeah. when you're a doctor or surgeon. Mm. It's not very good if you're a businessman. Yeah. And one thing I learned is that you need to know when to cut your losses. Mm. And I've had a few ideas that I've loved that it was so hard for me to walk away from them, but we just had to walk because I knew that chasing it with any other money would be chasing bad investments with good money. And you just have to know that uh, sometimes you need to stop the bloodletting and just put it behind you and go into the next thing. Yeah, that's the like. I believe Kenny Rogers wrote a song about that. You've got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. Oh yeah. I believe what you're discussing is the sunk cost fallacy. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. This is the idea that I just paid forty eight dollars for me and my wife and kids to come see this movie. I'm halfway through the first act and it's shit. We could go home and watch something on Netflix and have a better night together. I spent forty seven dollars. I'm staying. What do you then do? You now, you're now losing the next two hours of your life that you could otherwise have a nice. If this is the only night you get to spend with people. Yeah, you're now losing two hours watching a movie you don't want. You know, when, 100%. when you're in those situations, like let's explore that for a second. When you're in those situations, obviously no one gets into an investment in a company that they go, this might not work. No, you're, you've seen all the PDFs, you've seen the charts. You're going, yes, let's do it. I like the people. I've got a good track record. At what point do you start to raise flags, and at what point do you start to go, all right, it's time to go? Like, what are the things you look out for? There's a couple of, I've, I've had ideas where they're just ahead of their time. Mm -hmm. So a couple of uh, startups that w we invested in where I could see the technology was brilliant, the entrepreneur was brilliant, but the rest of the market was just too far behind. And often you see those ideas today. Now, you know, we pick up our phones and our phones are stronger than any computer that we had literally even five years ago. Um, same with uh, internet speed and bandwidth and that. That's just always opening up new opportunities. And I'm seeing tech startups and opportunities now that were the, our exact ideas. Um, and other people probably see this all the time. But you're going, oh, my God, I had that idea. 
I had the idea, by the way, for Snapchat. I've got all the guys in my office who will v- verify this. It was right after the the Wiener event. Uh-huh. You know, remember Wiener yeah. showing his the most his extra- junk? extraordinarily <laughs> ironic way of a politician to ever go. Uh, Anthony Wiener was his name. He was a congressman in the US, and accidentally was trying to send a DM, but accidentally sent it as a tweet and tweeted a picture of his erection to an intern, <laughs> and his name happened to be Anthony Wiener. <laughs> that was terrible. It was so, so bad. Right after that happened, I came up with this idea. What if we can, you know, socially send or on social media, send whatever type of images we want to people and then it deletes and it goes away forever. And I came up with a name called the Wiener App. And uh, (laughs) we brought in some developers to try and develop this and they kind of thought about it and, you know, it got one of those things, too many things were happening and couldn't really think about how to get that going and where the technology was. And then obviously about a year or two later, Snapchat comes out. But it's all got to do with timing. So timing is everything. And so going back to if timing is not right, it doesn't matter how much money you put into these businesses. There's got to be some magic in the air and there's got to be luck. Yeah. And there's a quote I love from Richard Branson, which is, opportunities are like buses. They come around all the time. And that's true. And so does luck. People go, oh, I'm not lucky. I never get any luck. Luck is everywhere. It's coming around all of the time. You just got to know when to recognize it and to capitalize on it. And sometimes, you know, startups are ahead of their time. So those are ones that... uh, we decided this is just not the right time. Let's stop investing in that. The others have been, you know, often, believe it or not, and this one's quite sad, but one of the biggest things I look for um, when I'm investing in a startup or even in an opportunity that I'd be doing myself is the ability for that opportunity or the entrepreneur to raise funds. If you can keep on raising funds, you can keep on reinventing, pivoting, and basically you extend that timeline, which I'm talking about. Mm. You know, you might just be around long enough to make sure that the timing is right to mm. launch or come up with something that really does, you know, hit or work for the business. And the guys who've been able to do that have been able, who are very skillful and been able to raise money quickly all the time, create amazing visions. And uh, through that, they've been very, very successful. So I remember I had a business, great idea, probably a little bit ahead of its time, you know, following the lean startup method. So you just raise a little bit of money to kind of build a minimum viable product to prove it out. Um, That has its pros and cons. But the problem with that is you've got to keep on raising all the time. And I realized that this person and the opportunity wasn't able to raise enough money that was going to get it through that period mm-hmm. to take it from a minimum viable product or an idea to a full-fledged business. Yeah. And when I see that as well, also big sign, red flag, pull the plug. Right. So sometimes it's not just about how smart they are, even what a good operator they are. It's little things in business, how good you are at raising money. Yeah. And then I have my three Ps yeah. on every single business. So the first one being perseverance, and that goes back to the story we just talked about, family, being able to get through the hard times. There's no business that you will be involved in that's not going to have massive, massive troughs. And if you can't work through those, and I've seen that in a couple of businesses and people, they just kind of fell apart when things got really bad. That's a, a big real, you know, red flag. The second one is partnership for me. Not everybody, but it's quite rare that you see 
the single entrepreneurs. And personally for me, I would put all of the businesses and any success I've ever had down to my partnership with Ido and uh, my two partners in the US, PJ and Sean, and just the ability to be able to build businesses with people who have complementary skills to you, who can divide and conquer. And that's the way to build businesses that are both long-lasting and strong. And most importantly, it makes it much more fun. Mm. The perseverance part, it's a lot easier to persevere when you've got someone's shoulder to cry on. Even the wins, you know, when you have the big wins, when you're sitting, you know, in uh, your little studio and you've got a massive order or a massive win or a mass raising, you want to high five, you want to go out, mm. you want to share it with people um, who know what you're doing every single day. And, and that shouldn't be your spouse because your spouse, you know, has different responsibilities and has to be your partner in many other different ways. The third one for me is passion. You've got to be passionate about what you do. And uh, I love what I do. I absolutely love what I do. And all the way down to the industry. I started in corporate finance and then applied that to the world of health and beauty and then built beauty brands and skincare. Then went outside of that you know, more into tech stuff, which I like, but I'm not passionate about. It's not really my background. And I've actually gone back into building consumer products and beauty products and very, very passionate about doing that mixed with building socially conscious businesses like our school stationery business, UB, which is a one-for-one give-back business. So when you're passionate about business and when you can see that passion in people, it's just a different level of enthusiasm and drive and motivation that they have to make something work. And kind of those three things I find work all together. So I look for those three whenever I'm investing or when I'm looking at an opportunity and I say, can I find these three elements in the business that I'm next getting into? What's fascinating about that to me, uh, just to go back to your, your Branson call, is that for a lot of people, and I'm myself included, if an opportunity shows up that might not tick all those boxes for me, sometimes in the past I've definitely been guilty of this, certainly when it comes to I've invested in a few little things here and there. I think something might never ever come along. This is my chance. Throw, throw a check at it Yeah. without thinking it through. You know what I mean? It's, or, or, you know, when it comes to a job, for example, we might, you know, not everyone's an investor. You know, when it comes to a job or something like this, oh, this is, oh I'll never get it again. So, well, will you? Is this something that you can, like, even if it's just a job we're talking about, you know, I know we're talking about companies, but say, for example, someone's considering changing careers or whatever. Is this a job they are willing to persevere at? Is this a job that they want to be in partnership with? Is this a job they feel passionate about? If it's not those three things, we might feel that, oh, I'll never get another one. I'll better stay here. Yeah. But ultimately, the sunk cost thing, what you were talking about before, is like, what are you then losing by staying? 100%. I have this, I would say the, the discussion I have most Um, with people who just want to chat or want to change careers is I want to change my career. I want to do something completely different. And the first thing that I say to them is, can we just sit for a while, discuss and kind of ascertain your risk appetite? Um, Because not everybody is an entrepreneur. And that doesn't mean anything. You've got to have a certain uh, desire and love for risk And I talk uh, about this uh, a little bit in in the book that we wrote when I started to really delve into my past of, did I like risk? Have I always been a risk taker? 
and I remember when I was in South Africa and, um, you know, fortunately, you know, one of the gray areas of growing up in South Africa is everybody has um, nannies and people are part of your families. And they were a real part of our family. I loved my nanny. She brought me up from literally day one till the day we I left South Africa when I was 19. But I used to always go into where she lived and she always used to play a game. It's a South African game called Farfi. And basically you took money and you chose numbers and you just put, you know, 50 cents, a dollar over here. And then all everybody used to go to the corner and there was this guy, he was the Farfi guy. And he used to drive around and he used to have basically uh, um, the, the actual numbers that were already pre-chosen. It's basically like a basic lotto. Mm. And he used to give everybody what the numbers are and then he used to pay them out accordingly. And I loved this game. And I knew that I wasn't allowed to play it. I was about eight years old. But my nanny used to let me play with her all the time. And I used to go and find whatever <laughs> spare little cash was lying around and go to her. And that kind of um, risk appetite, when I started to think about it, I realized I like risk. I like gambling. Funny enough, my father also likes gambling a lot. We always joke to him about it. But it's that it, you learn that from a young age and you've got to be comfortable with it because building a business is taking a massive, massive risk. And the thing that people say to me most of the time is, how do you handle it? How do you sleep at night? And I say to them, I sleep really, really well. What are my super strengths? I think my super strength is that at night, I put my head on the pillow and I switch off completely. And I wake up the next morning and I switch on and start to think about that. Maybe that came from my father and that's why my father was able to put everything bad that happened to him in you know the last, say, 15 years and just look forward. And when it's time to switch off, you switch off and you're just able to bring everything into perspective. And so the conversation, going back to the conversation I always have with people, tell me your risk appetite because, you know, it sounds really romantic hmm. to be an entrepreneur. But just understand this. Do you have kids? You know, are you married? You know, what are your uh, school fees, holiday fees, mortgage fees, whatever it, it costs? Just understand that when you start your own business, all of that, there's no guarantee around any of that. And I've talked to a lot of, my favorite was during 2008 when lots of investment bankers said, hey, I've had enough of the investment banking world, the GFC time, a lot of them were being laid off. These are really, really smart guys. These, these guys were exceptionally talented. And they came to me and said, listen, I really want to get into startup. I love startup. The only thing is I make $250,000 a year and usually bonus is, you know, half of that. But I'd be prepared to take like a cut of maybe 20%. And can I do a startup where I'm earning $200,000 a year and also want like 30 or 40% equity in the business as well? And I'd get real, dude. You're like, do you understand what it takes to be an entrepreneur? Do you understand what risk is? And that's fine if you don't. But just understand that from the beginning and then make your decisions on what your next steps are going to be. By the way, that's the most basic thing that I learned in finance, 101 at university, I did a, a finance degree. And it's literally wealth advisors, when you first meet them, they'll come to you and they'll say, let's work out your risk appetite. Are you high risk? Are you low risk? Do you want to go into startups? Do you want to go into funds? Do you want to go to um, you know bonds? It's the same thing when you speak to people. And I have a close mate who can take absolutely no risk and he's worked 17 years at the same company but 
Why is he good with it? Because he knows himself and he knows I cannot handle risk. Yeah. And I just got him the other day onto sports bet. I said, I want to train you in a little bit of risk. Your sports bet, you're going to spend $1 and just start to get a feel of what risk is. <laughs> well, maybe not gambling is the best. Uh, well, gambling on bosses, I can't say it's, you know, it's my, my thing, but uh, I get the idea. I get the idea that you're. it's, it's probably less of a crapshoot than it is a crapshoot. Subtle analogy. It's less of a... It's less of a risk than, you know, investing in people and an idea, but it's, you know, it's definitely, it's definitely there. When it comes to the successes that you've had, the way I look at it, the things that you've built, particularly when it looks at uh, Yes2, when I look at Yubi, when I look at the stuff that you do with Beach House, the way you align with now, you, you know, you're doing consumer products with uh, people who are in the public eye. It seems to me that the best thing you guys do is creating a brand that people can own. There can't be something you just lucked into. It had to be something that you figured out along the way, surely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the Beach House Group um, story is a great story of partnership, by the way. So we've been dealing with influencers for uh, a long time. The whole influencer celebrity thing is not a new thing at all. The way that it's been taken to market um, is new. What we did when we were at UB, we brought on plenty of influencers and brands like UB, which is a one-for-one brand, where for every single product that we sell, we donate a product to kids in need and we've given away um, nearly 80 million school Mm. supplies through that. That attracts influencers because they want to be part of that good feeling. They want to be part of the halo that the brand gives and they just want to give back. Whereas building a brand for or with an influencer or that an influencer owns, there's plenty of different ways. I mean, most influencers will put their face um, on, a, on an existing brand and they'll get paid a huge royalty rate, um, a huge upfront, and they'll become the face. And then there was the advent of new brands that were being built, um, like the Honest Company, which is Jessica Alba, and Goop by Gwyneth Paltrow. Lots of other examples of guys like 50 Cent doing vitamin water and Dr. Dre in Beats. They weren't as involved. They were people who really helped blow them up. Whereas uh, businesses like Jessica Alba and Honest Company and Goop, these are examples of where the influencers have really taken part, built them up, become actually entrepreneurs in that business. Um, And not all of them have been that successful. What we did was a combination uh, with Beach House Group. And uh, we had built a platform that was incubating brands, uh, mainly for retailers. And then we met our business partner. So I was doing that with my two business partners, Ido and PJ. And then we met our fourth business partner, a guy by the name of Sean Neff. And Sean had built an apparel brand, amazing story, built it through doing celebrity collaborations. And what we did with, uh, with Beach House is when we met him and we had already built this platform, he actually came along and, and said, you guys have built an unbelievable platform What I have is access and um, relationships with incredible influencers um, who are looking to start businesses, but I don't have the time, you know, or the platform or the infrastructure to do that. I'd love to join with you guys and do that. And he actually joined about three years ago. Um, And through that, that team, which is now being run by Sean and PJ, have done unbelievable stuff and focused on building four brands. The first brand um, that launched was with Kendall Jenner. 
in the oral beauty uh, category. Um, the second brand was or is with um, Shane Mitchell in luggage and travel accessories. Um, it's called Base B I S. The third brand is a brand called Florence by Mills, which is with Millie Bobby Brown, the Stranger Things. Uh, right. And the fourth one is Pattern, which is with Tracy Ellis Ross, which is in textured hair. All of those are partnerships, new companies where each one of those influencers is a co-founder and a influential partner in that business. They take part of everything from brand development, product development, obviously, all everything from um, social media, PR, they're intimately involved. And Beach House Group basically incubates, commercialize, and executes the entire business through its infrastructure itself. So it's a different um, way that we're taking it to market and uh, the deals are different, but it's been fantastic and those guys are doing an unbelievable job. So let me, so when you say incubate, you say, for example, I don't know, I'm going to make something up. Say I am probably, it's a shitty example because it's already been done, but say I'm a chemist who works in the cosmetics industry and I've got like, you know what, man, I've got this incredible eyeshadow that will not come off in water. All right. I can make it in this many colors. It's a one-step process. It's simpler than anything that anybody's got out there. But I, you know, who am I going to sell it to? L'Oreal, Garnier, that was probably all the same, owned by the same person. (laughs) You know, Unilever, whatever. I'll go to you and go, here's this thing. I've got this thing. And you go, right, that's great because we've got boom, 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 boom. And then you marry the two. Is that how it works? Not exactly. Yeah. Uh, But close. I mean, somewhat. So we work, the, the, the magic actually starts with, identifying the space. Uh-huh. Um, so the what we call it the white space opportunities. And we've worked with uh, retailers for you know, nearly 15 years, developed amazing relationships there, to the point that the retailers uh, will come to us and say, here's a particular space where we would like you guys to incubate a brand for us. Then we will work with particular manufacturers. Um, a lot of the R&D and the research and the new products actually come out of the manufacturers today. They have very extensive R&D facilities and we'll work with them. Uh-huh. We'll also tell them, listen, can you, um, you know, this is a new type of ingredient, kakadu plum. Mm-hmm. How do you incorporate that into a new type of uh, skincare mask and build something that's completely new? And then we'll find once we've got the product for the right white space, mm-hmm. the retailer who's really willing to uh, put it out there because distribution is one Mm -hmm. of the key components to our type of consumer product business, we will then start to think about, okay, who is the best influencer, who's the most authentic and really aligns with this type of uh, category. That's how typically these companies are developed. Just so, you know, we can expand this conversation beyond consumer brands, you know, for other businesses and, you know, for people's lives. What do you define as a white space? The white space is any space in any category, and we stick to obviously health and beauty. Um, we do a little bit in lifestyle, which is the travel and luggage accessory space, but any category in consumer products which is underserved by, let's say, the leading products in that category. So, you know, the market is very efficient, especially when it comes to consumer products. You know, the retailers in Australia and pretty much everywhere in the world, it's, it's especially first world countries, doesn't matter where you go, you'll find all the big players, all those guys who you just mentioned, they have their brands everywhere. What we find is that retailers will be very particular in the brands that they will stock. If there's an opportunity for them to make more money, they might come out with a private label brand. Mm -hmm. And what we find is there's typically a white space 
between private label, private label means the brand that the retailer actually makes themselves. Mm. So they don't have to buy it from a manufacturer mm -hmm. um, or a brand owner. They take all the margin. And a national brand, which comes from one of the bigger players. And they will say, well, there's something missing for a large pop demographic. Mm. You know, there's an opportunity to do a brand that's going to appeal to a big segment of the market. We think this is white space and we can't cover it ourselves by building a private label. And often what happens in the place where we look like, the bigger guys, it's just too small for them to go after. So we don't think about products and brands that the biggest guys are doing. You can apply that outside of consumer products. You can apply that through to tech products. You don't go and say, I want to come up with a new Apple Watch or mm. a new iPhone, um, all the way through to tech platforms as well. I don't want to build the next Google. Mm. But what I do know and what we've done, because we've built it from start, built it up and then sold it to the big guys, is anything, for instance, in the beauty industry, which is zero to almost $100 million in sales, is not on the radar of the big guys like L'Oreal and P&G and Unilever. It's too small for them. Wow. They're dealing in billion-dollar brands that yeah. they can put everywhere in the world. And it's too expensive and too hard, as we were talking about in the beginning. Every single show and every single product that you work on takes the same amount of time. Mm. So what is P&G when they want, to, they want to pump up their share price? They can either spend two years and $10 million building something from scratch. It's still going to take them three or four or five years to build that up. Or they can go and spend a billion dollars and buy a brand that's worth a couple of hundred million dollars yeah. and watch that brand grow. They can basically roll out that brand to yeah. 20 yeah. countries that they're in yeah. and they can make their money back. Yeah. And so that's what we look at. They're not interested in that space and they actually have M&A and corporate development departments that all their job is is find the Yes Twos and find the Kendall Jenner brand and find all of these different brands when as they got the momentum and as they're getting big, we want to buy them then and take them out. And so there's always a space between zero and 100 million. And that's where we play. And that's kind of where we've found our space. That's extraordinary. And I guess that exists everywhere. And I, and when you're those massive retailers, and, and this, in the States it would be, you know, CVS and stuff like that. But here you're talking Priceline, Chemist Warehouse and stuff. They just look at their data. They just look at the data of the stuff that gets sold and go, you know what? We've got this every week. This stuff hits the shelves and it is gone before we can restock. But it's also gone with this product because they're combining these two things. We need something that does both. <laughs> Absolutely. The data analysis now is key to yeah. all of this. And that's why the retailers mm. are going to incubators and basically saying, listen, this is happening too fast. Yeah. And so we would rather work with a partner mm. and secure the exclusive distribution in our retail because that's what the retailers are really fighting for now. Their biggest fight has been against, obviously, all the digital brands and they want to get them first and they want to get them exclusive. Mm. So there's a lot of uh, emphasis put on doing that. Then the next one is Amazon and digital today. So Amazon today, you know, you can basically use Amazon tools that can scavenge the whole of uh, Amazon and tell you exactly which the number one to 2,000 products are in ranking order and how much they're selling. And we use all of that information in order to understand what the next, you know, trending product is and how we can do it a little bit differently. 
Holy shit. Yeah. I'm reading this book at the moment called The Warehouse, which is a dystopian, maybe 30, 40 years in the future. And so it's basically like as if Amazon has uh, now has live work campuses. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's harrowing, but it's interesting. Um, oh, it's happening. Yeah, man. It is, it's, it, it is interesting. And it'll be interesting to see how it, how it plays out. Seattle is basically almost uh, um, an Amazon live work uh, location. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. You go to Seattle to Amazon. Not only do they have incredible offices all over Seattle, and Microsoft has the same thing, but yeah. all the um, all the residential housing and everything yeah. has been built or has been bought up by Amazon people, Mate, which is why people are going mental about where's Amazon going to start their next office because yeah. the knock-on effect is yeah. humongous for cities. Yeah, a buddy of mine, she just sent me a text. Uh, she screenshot it. She goes, look what the fuck has happened because we used to live in Venice Beach where I used to live and Facebook and Google and Snapchat are all all there. And she goes, look what happened. She's, you all know this because you know Los Angeles, an apartment in Mar Vista, not even a great apartment in Mar Vista. She had to give them a $20,000 bank check six months in front of rent to beat <sighs> everybody else out. Yeah, because it's like these guys with share options at Google are like, sure, I'll buy that block, shut it, you know, crush it, and then build one house where there were four. Because that's all happening. We we were there in Venice at the start of the year. I was like, could not believe how much my old neighborhoods changed. It was post Snapchat. So when Snapchat listed, they said it made. um, I don't know exactly what the figure is, but it said it made like a hundred new multimillionaires um, from holding stock employees, not just the the original founders and investors. But that means all those people who live around there yeah. were buying new places. Yeah. Um, and the gentrification around those places are Same thing in crazy. San Francisco. It's, it's happening so, so quickly. And I was lucky enough to see Jack Dorsey talk in Sydney a couple of weeks ago. And he talked quite openly about what's super important when you're building a brand that is based in America but has global effect it is more and more important than ever to create your offices globally. So he was talking about maybe I think my next office is going to be in Mumbai or my next office is going to be in Singapore or my next office is, is not going to be in anywhere near Silicon Valley or I try to diversify his employees as much as possible internationally just to at least understand the effect that their company has upon the world. Oh, yeah. Which is really, really interesting when you see and maybe, you know, I might have a bit of a tinfoil hat on a bit here, Lance, but, you know, when you see these guys who – you know, they come out of Stanford and they, they have a certain way of looking at the world and they're writing code. I'm really generalizing here, but a lot of these guys, they kind of have a libertarian kind of way of looking at the world. And if that's embedded into the code of the very apps that you're using, that may make sense in your suburb of Northern California where everyone else thinks like you. But what effect does that have on the way that someone in a country with completely different political values, you know, cultural values, whatever, who's now using that as their way of communicating? You know, this is wild. You know, the, the, the cultural osmosis that and the, the homogeneity of this thinking, has what it has, a knock-on effect it has on other cultures, is, is really fascinating. And I heard it the other day that I'm old, so I remember when cars still didn't have seatbelts, right? Jesus, how old are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm old, 45, man. <laughs> I grew up in Brisbane too, which is a cow town, right? But, you know, we look back now, it's like the idea of not having a seatbelt on a car to us is preposterous. But they sold without seatbelts for 70 years and people yeah. died left and right. Children would just file on the back of the station wagon, whatever. And so now, essentially, this phone, this is what we're using, this thing right here, we're, we're flying down the freeway without a seatbelt right yeah. now. That's where, basically where we are. And the seatbelts are coming. 
but at this point, we still have no seatbelts. So we're flying through the windshields. We're, you know, we're running over pedestrians. We're driving drunk. All this kind of stuff we're doing the way we're using our phones and the way the algorithms are working. So it, it will shut down, but it's going to have to reach a point where, yeah. you know, which is which is interesting. Sorry, I kind of diverted. diverged. That, that phone, by the way, uh, the phone. It's a pokey is, in your pocket, mate. Uh, it yeah. really is. What's yeah, that? You've that, got a teenager. You've got a teenage daughter. Yeah. I've got two teenagers. You do. And I would say the most difficult thing I have to deal with is the phone. Yeah. Well, it, it's. I think it's the next cigarette. Without a it's, doubt. It, it's, Without a doubt. I, I, and I don't know. I don't have a solution. We've Let's tried see, everything. It, it, tried Alpact, tried threats. Uh, I don't know what to do. Do you lock their phones? Do you have the screen time passcode? Uh, we use we use a little app called yeah. Alpact. Yeah, yeah, and it um, locks and it so, off. Yeah, it locks it off. Yeah, and we obviously there's no phones during um, the school week. Wow, uh, um, how'd you do that? Well, let, let me in particular, they can use it when they come home for like an I think they get an hour or something. Fuck man, you're, that's you're, you're so better only than weekends. Me. <laughs> you're better than me. Um, so they can only do weekends, but then come the holidays and it's not school and and they go crazy and then I have this argument all the time with my wife around we said let's just take away the phone and then we, I start to think about well you know when I was 15 and I went home the only way I got to communicate with anyone was on the telephone so imagine yeah. my parents said to me I can't use the telephone anymore because yeah. that is effectively these kids don't really speak on the phone anymore no. everything is through texting um, Video messaging so, their friends, photo, exactly. photos of their faces. And everyone's afraid of making their kids become a pariah and mm. socially ostracised because yeah. they're not on the telephone network yeah. of our age. Anyway. You don't want to isolate them. Yeah, oh, mate, I, I understand 100%. And but, I guess, you know, for us it's always been a challenge of like trying to make sure that she gets that serotonin squirt from other things and thankfully she's she's into dancing she's into sport yeah. she's into other things but yeah that's all a part of it there's a really interesting book that they actually teach at Stanford when you do the computer science degree the book was written as a way of like if you did the worst thing ever this is how you would trap people into it and some coders went brilliant and created Candy Crush <laughs> It's the same yeah. stuff that they used to create poker machines with the variable reward systems and, and you know the lights and the whistles and the buzzing and the, and the pretty pictures and the sounds. It's the same, 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 same. Yeah. We'll find a way where a community goes, that's enough, but we're not I'm there hoping. yet. No. I think it's the, the challenge of the next 20, 30 years. Oh, yeah. I think the big, for me the bigger challenge is I think about Wolfie, you know, I think, you know, for him, like it's there was a time when uh, growing up there was an agreed-upon reality that, uh, we could then have a debate about. However, now that is fractured beyond recognition when if I want to sit here and have a conversation about climate change and the need to rapidly decarbonize and, and you know, suck carbon out of the ocean and, and, you know, get off fossil fuels, someone sitting across the table from me who has been exposed to completely polarized news articles and a different version of it will look at me and go, what the fuck is wrong with you? None of that's happening. Yeah. You're an idiot. And we'll just stare at each other blankly going, one of us is dreaming. Yeah. And we won't, we, we're, we're stuck. We're stuck in that in moment because it's now possible to create a completely different version of reality that someone will look at and believe to be true. And, you know, we've, it'll be interesting to see how the 2020 US election plays out, man. I'm telling you. No, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. And to see, I mean, I've been listening, obviously, and following what Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg mm. um, are doing to try and prevent all of the uh, the, the fake mm. news 
syndrome and everything else. But it would be interesting to see how it affects it. I just I don't know how you how you control that. It's yeah. it's not something new. No. It's something that's been around forever. And the the only thing that Facebook and other platforms like that do is disseminate them quick enough. Mm. So Faster all of a sudden than, yeah. today it's those same news stories, the same fake stories, the same people who are willing to do anything to achieve their goals are able to get their message to a million times more people than yeah. they were before. Yeah. And that's the problem. How do you stop that? It's technology. Yeah. And uh, I'm all for technology, don't get me wrong, but yeah. well, we've we've got to put some well, I, I breaks guess, or rules or guardrails in place. Well, as a as someone who works in broadcasting, you can't go on air in radio in this country and in television in this country without having and this is what you can and can't say. This is liable. This is fake. You, you know, you will be taken to court and sued for this and this and this and this and this and this and this. As far as I'm concerned, Instagram, Facebook, those are broadcast devices. YouTube is a broadcast device. Why are they not under the same reg- rules and regulations that other broadcast media is in this country? Well, I think the answer to that, though, is it's because they can or w- where's their domicile? Firstly, yeah. you think it's in, in the US because that's where their major bases are, but most of them are now... Irish companies or I don't even know what the- It's the Dutch sandwich, I think it's called. Yeah. And so they're all over the world. But how do you bring a global standard for this when the world can't agree on anything today? (laughs) Well, we're going to have to. We're going to have to in a hurry, which does lead me to the last thing I want to talk to you about, which is the kind of business that I love you for, which is the we're going to build something that people need and people are going to pay for it. We're going to make money, and with that money, we are also going to give something to people that can't pay for it, and that there's three parties involved, and that there's a, it's a, called a triple bottom line. And I love that you do this kind of business, and and I love that more and more businesses are, do, are working this way. Why do you think this is the way that things are going as far as creating products goes? Yeah, that business is Yubi, obviously, mm-hmm. and when we created Yubi, it was actually – after we had sold our first company, um, which was Yes To, the skincare company. And my partners and I wanted to do something which was still commercial, but which was much more impactful. And we felt that we could take all the lessons and experiences that we had with building a disruptive consumer brand and apply that to a category such as stationery, which this was out of the US originally. But that was coupled with a very, very serious issue in the US. And that issue that um, we came across was public school teachers who were basically funding school supplies at public schools for their own kids in their class, up to $500 per teacher. And as you know, public school teachers are probably the most underpaid and underappreciated people that you can get. Yes. You know, my mum's a public school teacher and so is both of my partner's mums. And we felt like that was an amazing cause. If we could create a brand that aligned with trying to solve this issue, we could create a brand that people would buy not only because they wanted to do good, but what we found was most important is the brand still had to be well-priced. It had to be amazing quality, amazing fashion, on trend. So it wasn't people sacrificing. It was people making a choice that I want to buy a product or a brand that also does good. Mm-hmm. And that is a trend that's been happening now, obviously, for, I would say, more than the last 10 years, which really picked up steam, you know, especially in the US. 
Um, we were inspired by brands like Tom Shoes, mm. Blake Makovsky built an amazing brand, which is for every single pair of shoes that he sold, he donated a pair of shoes to kids who had no shoes in Argentina and it was a South American um, style type shoe. He's given away tens of millions of shoes and other brands like Warby Parker, which did the same with uh, glasses. Mm. We felt like we could do this in another area. And we really thought about, well, are we building a social enterprise or are we building something else? And I started doing lots of research and came across a group of people who were focused on building socially conscious businesses or socially conscious capitalism or socially mm -hmm. conscious entrepreneurism. And effectively, that is using the principles of building a commercial and profitable business, but ensuring the same time that every win that you have somebody else wins as well in the space, in the social space. And the social enterprise route, which is a fantastic route as well, is much more focused on we have a problem, how do we create a business where we can bring in funds to help us fund executing against that problem versus just a charity, which basically just tries to raise funds from donors. Mm. And I just remember... Uh, watching a, a TEDx by Dan Pilata, which was all about how the NGO and the charitable industry is kind of broken. It's unfortunately when you have people who are consistently focused on raising funds and consistently focused on hiring people who are only prepared to work for much lower than market rates, it doesn't attract the best or most passionate people to do things. Usually they're most passionate, but they're mm. not always the the, yeah. the best. And so I felt like you could do a combination. And that's what we set out for UB2B. And not only that, we made that a principle of all of our companies. So if you walk into our building today, there are in neon lights, it says incredible people, which is the journey of retailers, people we've met, people we've worked with along the way. The second is brilliant product, because without the product being incredible quality, well-priced, and everything else that I said, people still, they still really want a really good product. Mm. The third one is awesome cause. And so those are the three pillars of every single one of our business. We make sure that we have those three things built in, and the awesome cause is one of the most important concepts of that. So with Yubi, we wanted to build something that was really aligned to giving, and at the same time, we wanted to build it in a way that we could still build a business where we could bring value to shareholders. So still honor all the concepts of building a normal private enterprise. And what we found is that when we were able to raise and bring in funds, because we were promising shareholders not only a capital return, but also a real benefit from a social aspect, we were able to raise more money. And with more money, we were able to do more things. And by doing more things, we were able to give more away. Mm. And we launched UB in the US in June 2014. So it's been a journey of five years. And we've given nearly 85 million school supplies. We're this close to hitting nearly 5 million kids who have got all of their school supplies just from other people buying UB products. It's Amazing. been tens and tens of millions of dollars that have been given away, but it's been able to create the most amazing brand. Mm. And we're able to also 
hire people and pay them market rate, but we're able to attract people. And what we found today is millennials in particular, they're the people who are driving the desire to buy these products. Mm. And they're also the people who are driving the desire to work for these companies. Mm. So it is so competitive out there to attract people. It's almost getting to the case where you have to make sure that you've taken care of the social aspect of your company because millennials demand that. They want to work for companies that are doing better. And so we've been able to attract yeah. amazing people. And we get people into school gives. We were fortunate enough to have you come to a couple of school it's gives as well. It was the best. And so when we get employees to come to do that, they really see what yeah. they're doing. And that's the passion no. that we just cannot replicate yeah. in many extraordinary i was telling one of the uh, the guy you met out here before you arrived he asked me you know who's coming in today i said oh, he, he does this and we've been to parts of the city and i was explaining and i you know i'm, I'm not going to name the school but it happened at a few schools that we, you and i went to that there was a bell before the school bell and i asked the teacher what's that so she said oh that's the toast bell and i said what's that she goes well we give the kids breakfast because if we don't give the kids breakfast they won't eat that happens in this city, in this fucking city, in this in this country, this incredibly wealthy country, uh, 40 kilometers from here. I could not believe yep. that that was the case, that that is allowed to happen, and it blew my mind. And so, you know, those mornings that we went and did that stuff, man, it was the most incredible thing, and at the same time harrowing. It's like, this isn't right, and it, it, it sucks that it comes to someone like yourself too because, you know, it's one thing if the kid doesn't do homework, but if the kid doesn't do homework because there's no pen in the house, it's a different story, and which is where someone like you comes along. But I really like what you said, that the, the consumers are demanding it more and more and more and more. And, you know, the other night during the NRL Grand Final, I don't know if you watched it, it was a bit of a travesty. There was, you know, another six tackles called an East well, one. I did. I watched some Roosters fans. Did so. you see? <laughs> did you see what was written on the field? VB. All right. Underneath the VB logo at the NRL Grand Final, two something million people watch. There's more than that. It's like the biggest Bevan Bogan thing you've ever met. Underneath the VB logo, it says "Brewed with 100% Offset Solar from 2020." <laughs> VB. How much more of a straight down the line, Aussie, Aussie, liberal voting brand can you get than VB is going, we have to say we're brewed with offset solar. And that buoyed my heart because, yeah, I'm terrified about climate change yeah. and I'm fucking terrified that we're not doing enough fast enough. But when I see something like that, I'm like, wow. It sucks that a company has to make that move before a government mandates it, but a company, a brand like VB? Yeah. Blew my mind. Oh, I love it. Uh, absolutely. And we're definitely getting close to the tipping point. And these, obviously, the millennials, a millennial today is, I like to pretend like I'm a millennial, but I think I'm just outside the cusp of being millennial. I think it ends at somewhere around 38, 39. Do, do what I do, just wear a lot of hoodies. <laughs> I ride an electric scooter. It's not a Tesla, but it's my my scooter I came on and it's electric today. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I try to blend in. Yeah. But I'm, I'm trying everything, including the... Yeah, oh, okay. we're going to try to get young man haircuts. Um, but, but you're yeah. saying the, the millennials? The millennials are, you know, the people who are towards the end of it are becoming the leaders of these companies. So, you know, they're coming in, obviously, uh, at start level or Gen Z, of course. But these are middle management to senior management and soon they're going to be leading the company. And so this type of stuff is going to be a given. I'll tell you today that it's kind of when we started, yes, too. 
which was a, a natural beauty brand. And people ask me today, you know, what did you do first? And, or yeah, what, what's one of your biggest brands? And I would say, oh, we started a brand called Yes Too. It's a natural beauty brand. And they go, oh, natural beauty. I mean, every other brand is a natural beauty brand. I said, I get that, but in 2005, yeah. it was quite a cool, unique thing to do. It was you. And it was you and Burt's Bees. Yeah, at yeah. the time. And uh, today, and this is, I'm really happy about this, but even today, when we go to retailers and we say, you know, we have a brand that gives back, it's a one for one, they go, okay, that's cool, but so does this one and so does that one. And I'm like, that's fantastic. That's great. Yes, we might have started it five years ago, but. The more companies that do this, my whole motivation, and I do some corporate presentations and that called how being good is good for business. I want to see a world where every single commercial business is required, just like they have to choose and go on ASIC and choose a business name and get an ABN, where they have to choose a charitable organization that they partner with that gets X percent of their funds or their revenue or their profit. I mean, there's one. There's the 1% pledge, there's some great ones, but I would love to see a day where that gets mandated by the government. And I tell you what, if that was to be proposed today, there's not gonna be many companies that put their hands up shouting against that. Um, so I'd love to see that happen. Well, you're saying because companies wanna be seen as giving back to the community, but don't know how, don't have the resources. Exactly. That's the biggest issue we have today. It's existing companies that don't know where to start. Usually uh, I'll talk to companies that all companies mean well, but typically you might have a company where they have a project or a charity that they give to, but it's typically the CEO wife's favorite charity, which might be an orphanage in Nepal. And seriously, this is one company that I do, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. However, for the employees who are in Australia, um, they find it very, very difficult to connect with that. Mm-hmm. And they are looking for an organization that authentically aligns with them. So I typically, in my presentation, I speak on four things that companies need to look for in order to find the right partner. It's a symbiotic relationship. If it works for you, you're going to be more into it and you're going to give more, people are going to give more, and the charity is going to get more. And that's all a win-win situation. So the four things that I always look for is alignment. So for instance, if you look at Yubi, Yubi is a school supplies business. We aligned with giving school supplies to people who need it, nice and easy. The second one is transparency. So where we felt consumers start to get a little bit skeptical is around where, well, people give a percentage of profits. Well, profits is a very subjective thing often because it's very easy to skew profits. And what does that mean? If you make a loss one year, you give nothing. So quite difficult. So what's becoming more popular is to give a percentage or a one-for-one against revenue or sales. So for Yubi, we for every product we sell, we donate a product. So if we have a great year, we sold X million, we're giving X million. If we had a terrible year where we lost money, if we sold X million, we still gave X million. We had to. It's transparent. People believe and they can see that and there's no skepticism. The third one is local. We found that people want to give consumers and employees, they want to be attached to local causes. So 
it maybe it's a little unfortunate, but the days of people being more into, you know, saving the rhinos and elephants in Africa, which I'm actually obviously very sensitive about because I come from there, is less attractive to consumers as uh, tending to the issues in food insecurity in Sydney. Problems even in your local beach, whether it be cleanup. Mm. People want to attack local problems first. And so that gives great opportunities for brands and companies to say, let's partner with the local a local charity or a local cause and fix that. And the last one is impactfulness. And what we found is if you can partner with a charity and organization that can have a real impact on the cause that they're fighting, people get really behind you. So there's many companies that will give to say cancer organizations. Of course, that's incredibly important. But giving even a million dollars to a cancer organization is amazing, but it's not going to solve the issues that there are with cancer. And not to say people who do that, it's amazing, it's great. But if you're a small company, you could even be a restaurant and you want to give. And you can only maybe give 10,000, maybe 50,000. Connecting or partnering with a, for instance, like a local clean up the beach organization, that entire budget is probably $50,000 a year. And you can give half of that budget to them. You're a hero. Mm. You're a hero to the people who in that suburb. You're a hero for people around there. And all of a sudden, you've created a cause that people are going to recognize and relate your business to. So those are the four things, alignment, transparency, local and um, impactfulness. And those are things I like to talk about to help people try and find the right charity partner for each of their businesses. And it's worth it for the company to do this. Why? For all of those reasons that made UB a success, uh, yes, to a success and all of it. It's important because it helps not only get the consumers to really believe why they should purchase your brand above another brand, mm -hmm. but it creates a relationship with you and the consumer because they feel like they're not only just buying something and we live in this crazy consumer society, they feel like, okay, I have to buy the skincare item. I have to buy a pen. What if I can, through the small action of just buying something, help people? Isn't that amazing? We're lazy. We're all lazy. Everybody is lazy. What we found with um, from yes to we're trying to convince people to buy a natural product versus a product with chemicals. It's just easy. They're everywhere. The other products you can buy them simply. They're cheaper. You don't have to think about it. The same with electric cars versus you know electric cars now cost the same as normal cars do, but it's a pain and you've got to stop that. You have to find a charger, etc. It's so easy if we can get people to make. Simple, simple choices. You know, like, you know, when you're buying a Qantas or a Jetstar and now they say, hey, click over here and for $1.20 you can offset your carbon. Every time. Of course. Why wouldn't you? Do it's it so time. easy. It's a click. Yeah. When we make things easy, people do it. And the last reason is it's because now that is what the next generation is demanding. They are demanding that I want to work for a company that it's not just about how much money you make, how much your profits are. It's also, yes, I do want to earn a great uh, salary. I do want to you know, be part of building something bigger. I've got other responsibilities to look after, but I want to feel that whatever I do, even going to work, I'm making a difference. Mate, amazing. I really could talk to you all day, Lance. And the sooner you're a professor of business at UTS, the better. Well, Have they asked you to do that yet? 
Uh, watch the space. <laughs> yeah, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> I know you're starting yet, a business no, no. school. I knew it. Um, you're the best, man. I'm so grateful you came in today. It's been so good. I'm so grateful to do hey, this. Thanks for having me. Mate. I love chatting. And it's just, it's great catching yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. That was Lance Kalish. That's Wolfie in the background, not wanting to have a nap. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being a part of the show. Uh, thank you very much to Andy Ma, my audio producer, Rachel Barrett, my show producer, Mike Mills, who's written all the music for this show. And if you are starting from the beginning, yes, even that incredible super metal mega monstrosity at the start of the early episodes, Mike wrote and played all of that as well. Mike Mills, extraordinary talented guy. Thanks heaps for being a part of the show. If you need me through the week, send us your email at gmail.com. I'll see you on Wednesday for Dad Pod, and I'll be back here on Friday. Have a great week. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.